Hey there, Dragonfly Nation. Caleb coming to you with a really cool offer from my dear friend Chris Gilmore from Chris Outdoors. When you first get started exploring the outdoors, whether it be through hunting, camping, or survival skills, it can all get a little bit mm, daunting and maybe even overwhelming in regards to how much there is to learn. Having a solid foundation in tracking and naturalist skills can help open the door to bushcraft and make you learn much faster. It can also just make things outdoors that much for, uh, that much more fun and exciting. What bird made that call? What animal does that track belong to? What do those clouds mean in regards to the incoming weather? Nature awareness is a skill set that is transferable to all aspects of bushcraft and beyond. Whether you are a hunter, a trapper, an angler, a survivalist, a paddler, or a hiker, this skill set can help make you safer and make your experiences that much more enjoyable. Chris has taught literally thousands of people how to read sign, whether it be through tracks, bird language, or the environment itself. And with his new online learning course, Reading Nature's Language, he can help you take your skills to the next level. Even though it is based online, you will have access to tons of practical activities and challenges that will make you the woodland Jedi you always wanted to be. Check out the trailer and more details at www.learnnatureslanguage.com. And just to sweeten the deal for you, enter the promo code DRAGONFLY to get 25% off the course. Again, that is www.learnnatureslanguage.com with the promo code DRAGONFLY for 25% off. To know the landscape is to open up a door. Than you've ever felt before. We know that you will love this podcast. So shut your mouth and listen to Canadian Bushcraft. Hey there, Dragonfly Nation. This is a small little segment we're going to be doing here and there, interspersed throughout different episodes throughout the year. This is a very special little addition to the podcast that we usually do and it is called uh nature's updates we're gonna be doing nature updates uh basically focusing on what's happening in the environment around us at that time of year for hunting for fishing for foraging anything regarding food and food from the land in general and i have my very good friend chris gilmore from chrisoutdoors.com or .ca 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 chrisoutdoors.ca we have Chris here with me to do updates on these special little excerpts that we're going to be doing on different episodes throughout the year. So Chris, what are you doing right now for food on the land? What's coming up for you as experiences out on the land? Yeah, well, one thing that's super exciting. So I live up on the edge of uh, Algonquin Park up in a region called Muskoka. And mm -hmm. two nights ago, the spring peepers started singing uh, yeah. for the first time this year. Um, which I, I just love. I mean, that's special in and of itself, but what the spring peepers are my cue for or signal for is that's when the smelts start to run. Oh. So last night, about 11 o'clock at night, I went out uh, onto the edge of um, one of the lakes up here to one of the tributaries because these smelts basically come in the thousands off of the lake uh, and they come and spawn up there and uh, you actually net them in the dark. Uh, so you go, they run in the evening, you go out there with a flashlight and you basically sit with a net and you wait for them to come upstream. Uh, so I went out there last night and I saw just a handful of smelt starting to come up, um, which means that our peak is probably starting tonight. So this Ooh. evening, I'm going to be going out about 11, 10, 30, 11 o'clock again with my flashlight and my net, uh, a five gallon bucket, and I'll be, I'll be net and smelt. So that's super exciting. Um, awesome. Two reasons I'll just share that I love about, uh, about netting smelt. One, it's an abundant food source. 
Two, they're super nutritious. Um, you know, they don't have the same toxicity that some of the larger fish have as far as like mercury and buildup. Um, so they're really, I mean, they're, they're a superfood. you know, I hate to use that trendy word, but they really are. And then number three with them, um, from a sustainability and stewardship perspective, um, they're not actually native to the lake that I fish them out of. And they've actually caused some disturbance up there. So I can actually feel good about harvest them in huge amounts. So smelts, number one, that I'm doing with food right now. Um, number two, the wild leeks are actually coming up early this year. Yeah. Uh, so we're getting really excited. Uh, we'll be harvesting mm -hmm. almost three weeks earlier than we have in past years this year, but we're getting ready to do that. Uh, with the leeks, we actually just harvest the leaves. We take yeah. one leaf per plant and we don't harvest the roots, uh, which means that that plant's going to keep coming back up year over year. You know, we'll, we'll sometimes harvest a small amount of roots in spots with a lot of leeks. Yeah. Um, you know, to make like a nice leek soup, but generally we just harvest the leaf, which I feel like is a really good practice from a stewardship perspective. Uh, so I have that going on. And then, um, yeah, I guess those are probably actually two of the main things that I'm, I'm focused on right now. Um, oh, and then morning sits for Turkey, Turkey season's coming up. Yeah. Uh, so I've been, uh, getting out on the land and, um, uh, listening in the morning to where the gobbles are. I, I just started practicing with my barred owl call, which we call a locator call. Um, yeah, yeah. so in the next couple of days, I'm going to start in the morning and evening doing my barred owl call and trying to figure out where the toms are hanging out and starting to make my game plan for the turkey season that opens up in, uh, less than a month here. Yeah. I'm what about sure. you, Caleb? What are you focused on? What I'm focused on right now. Is, so right now the sucker are running in my area. So I'm about three hours South of Chris myself. And so we've had our leaks are coming up for about a week now. I've been picking them here and there again. I only harvest one leaf per plant. If that sometimes it'll be like one leaf per five plants. But uh, depending on how sensitive the spot is, uh, the main thing I'm waiting for right now is fiddleheads. The fiddleheads usually start about a week, week and a half after the leaves of the leeks have fully matured. So any day now, I'm waiting for those beautiful little ostrich ferns to start poking their fiddleheads up out of the snow. Sorry, not the snow, the, the, the mud and the, and the silt and everything that they're growing in. Uh, we've, been, we've been spearing sucker for about five days now. Uh, sustainably, uh, sustainably speared. We're First Nations down here, so we follow our traditional rights and our harvesting rights, and we are very selective on how we hit. We don't hit the females, and if there's a group of males, we'll take like one uh, male out of each group. So we're very, very careful with how we take our sucker. There's a lot of controversy around spear fishing and all that. I'm, I'm well aware of all that. I know some of our listeners may be a little concerned about that, but we are very, very careful with what we take. So sucker fish, and then all the guts, all the carcasses go right in my garden and that's the main thing i'm getting ready right now is my garden we have about another month before we're planting seeds but we are planting plants but we have like 200 plants started in the house right now of chili peppers uh beans squash herbs all the things you can think of lettuce kale all the things that all the people love at the farmers markets as well and so those are the main things I'm getting ready right now and getting prepared for. So food on the land, I'm looking at my garden prep, I'm looking at my fishing and I'm looking at my fiddleheads, leeks still as well. I'm picking some leeks, but it's really the fiddleheads. And then finally getting ready for, as you said, Turkey, uh, April 25th for my area is when Turkey opens up and I am, did I tell you about all the photos we're, we're getting? We have a trail camera and I'm watching a flock of 40 turkeys a day walking in front of my trail camera. So I don't even have to do any shot calls of, of crows or owls. I know exactly where they're roosting and I'm very, very close to ready to kill them. So that's about all I've got on my end. Uh, Chris, is there anything you want to talk about regarding how people can learn more about this kind of stuff, uh, where they can learn to learn about food on the land and nature awareness and everything else? 
Yeah, well, uh, one thing I'd like to invite people to, so Caleb and I are actually uh, partnering on a course that we're making public uh, this year for the first time. We ran a beta version of this back in 2020, uh, and it was invite only with a small group because we just wanted to kind of test out what would it be like to, to teach this online, uh, and it was incredibly successful. Uh, a lot of good feedback. So this year, we're actually opening it up to everyone. And the course is called The Hunter's Journey. Um, and the idea behind it is, uh, you know, a lot of people that want to harvest food from the land, uh, they know they would like to, that to be a part of the, the relationship that they have with the land. They'd like to be able to harvest food in a good way that's healthy. And they want to make sure that they're sustainable when they do it, you know, that they're not hurting future populations. And, you know, what do you, how do you do that if you don't actually have a mentor, if it wasn't part of your family uh, upbringing. So that's who we created the hunter's journey course for is basically beginner hunters or those just considering what it might be like to harvest uh, food off of the land. Uh, we call it learn to hunt with skill, respect and heart. Uh, so we're opening that enrollment up for that. It's called the hunter's journey.com or sorry, that's the website you can go to the hunter's journey.com. So if you're looking for a mentor to help you get into uh, this ancient and modern practices of, of hunting in an ethical way from the land, then you might want to check that out. Wonderful. Well, thanks everybody for tuning in for this short little excerpt. We're going to get back to the regular broadcast. One. Hello, Dragonfly Nation. This is the Canadian Bushcraft Podcast with your host, Caleb Musgrave. And I am joined by my very good friend from Earth Path, Nikki Satira. Nikki is a longtime herbalist. She's a botany freak, just like me. She loves plants almost as much as she loves birds. Uh, I think she loves plants more than I love plants. Uh, whereas I, I do. love, whereas I love birds more than she does. So I love plants more than birds. Let's just get that clear. Yeah. 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 We, so we've got a good balance here. Like I love birds more than you do, but you love plants more than I do. So this is the yeah. perfect, uh, <laughs> since we did the spring birds a couple of weeks back, this is the perfect time to kind of like switch the ball of the balance, bring the balance to the force, <laughs> all that kind of stuff. I'm not sure why I did Pal Palpatine bring balance, but whatever. <laughs> um, what we're going to be talking about today is about something that's very important and very crucial for people right now. This episode is dropping literally the day after we record this because this is a very crucial thing because since the beginning of the pandemic, foraging has skyrocketed across Canada. It is like there's a, the Ontario Wild Crafting and Foraging and Fermenting Group on Facebook and it like over a thousand percent registration into that group since the beginning of the pandemic like they've gone over a thousand times over what their original numbers were and what i see in there is two things very frequently not just in there I'm, i want to make this very clear i'm not being critical of that group per se but of foraging groups across social media that i've been a part of and i've recently left a lot of because there's two main questions i hear a lot on there one is this chaga <laughs> and the second look at all these leaks i dug uh, i dug up it's like, ah. so with that uh nikki and i about a week ago did a live session on instagram where we talked about the ethics of foraging and we loved it so much and it was such a like to me that was such a hit i don't care what our numbers were i haven't even looked at the analytics of what that what that live session did but it's such an important one with all the crap going on with everybody going on just picking everything they can in droves we both agreed like we should make this into a podcast episode let's do this as soon as possible and so we are sitting here while i'm like in the in the midst of getting all my other stuff done in life I'm like we need to do this today <laughs> so we are going to talk about the ethics of foraging the ethics of sustainable bot botanical gathering and taking from the land in a reciprocal balanced way uh so that it's not going to devastate the ecology that's something that i think we both 
really care about is making sure that what we do is in balance and uh, what we do is in a good way. So most of this episode, even though it sounds like I'm going to be talking a lot because I'm hopped up on caffeine, a lot of today is going to be me asking questions to Nikki and Nikki is going to be talking a lot, uh, answering a lot. I'm not sure she's going to talk a lot because she looks a little tired right now, but we'll find out. What? You look a little tired. You look like you need like- I'm not though. (laughs) I'm not drinking coffee right now, Caleb. You made me jealous this morning with your double shot. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I forgot you're on that. I forgot. I'm sorry. I feel really bad now. Thank I don't you. like I don't like rubbing things in people's faces, so I feel really bad. <laughs> it's okay, I'll get you back. Eventually, yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, where would you like to begin with this journey of ethical foraging? Where would you like to start with it all? I really would like to explain because we talked about this on the live about why I'm not a forager and why I don't consider myself a forager. Totally, totally. and you and your perspective is different than mine, so I'll talk about mine after. Yeah, yeah. So I don't like to call myself a forager. Uh, I don't really forage. I used to, uh, quote unquote, forage. And the thing about that was like, I was going out harvesting all sorts of plants um, and using them in food. And then I had this kind of realization of like, I don't actually need to be harvesting wild food. I have a garden. I can grow food. I have food access at grocery stores. Mm -hmm. And so why would I kind of like affect the balance of the ecosystem by taking from it? Mm -hmm. And my, my view on that has kind of changed or shifted over the years a little bit. But the reason I say I'm not a forager is because I don't feel right about it. And I don't want to put that kind of label on it because I think it encourages people to go out and just forage and, and like you said, like take the bulbs from leaks and, and not without building relationship first. Mm -hmm. So I'm not a forager. I am a plant friend. (laughs) (laughs) I like that. I like that. Um, And what I mean by that is like, I always give this analogy when I'm teaching botany classes or teaching plants classes of like, if I were to like approach somebody and I was like, hi, my name's Nikki. And they were like, nice to meet you, Nikki. My name is Mike. And then I would go and say, now Mike's my best friend because I know his name. (laughs) (laughs) And that's what I feel like it is that there's that culture around harvesting wild foods and getting to know plants Mm -hmm. is that people are like, okay, I have the name. I've identified it. The relationship is done. I can eat it now. And I think that's really unfair because you know what? There's a whole branch of science called plant neurobiology that just started in like 2016. Mm -hmm. And they're finding more and more that plants, I mean, duh, in my eyes, (laughs) are living conscious Mm -hmm. beings that feel pain and have like really complex like I guess the anthropomorphic term would be nervous system Mm. and they are living things and they do feel I don't want to sound too woo-woo right now (laughs) no no you're good like actually like the week the weekend that you and I first met in person was at Heartwood Gathering in 20 I want to say 16 or 17 and there was a lady that was, I was, I was processing acorns that I had gathered the fall before and I was getting them all ready for my acorn workshop. And while I'm getting all that ready, there's this lady setting up these like diodes or something on a tree. 
and like had yeah. a had a musical instrument hooked up to it and it would be like <laughs> and she decided to do this five feet behind my head and i was very annoyed by this because it's like you're distracting me with these weird sounds and i want to focus on like not breaking my finger with this rock mm-hmm. and i'm trying to crack acorns with a rock and you're doing it right behind my head and once in a while it would be like i'm like Duh, stop doing that and she turned to me she goes I'm just trying to show that trees can communicate and they talk to us all the time. And I was like, yeah, they do that. You don't have to hook up a diode to it and yeah. like make them yeah. <laughs> audibly do that. And she's like, really? I'm like, yeah. yeah. Like, she's like, this is not a, like astounding you or anything. I'm like, not at all. It's annoying me really because she couldn't understand that I already have a relationship with those yeah. trees. And I've mm-hmm. had that relationship that I was raised with by my father and my relatives as Nishnabic, and I don't want to always like go to this tokenizing of native culture and I don't want to romanticize and mysticize us by any means, but mm-hmm. there's a relationship we have where when you're walking out there and you're looking for like, let's say a birch tree for basket bark, you go out on that land and you're putting that tobacco down, you're putting that, that thought out into the environment and you're saying, I need this and this is all I need. I don't need to take anything else. I'm just looking for this specific thing. And as you walk through those woods, you'll see dozens, maybe hundreds of birch trees and it doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel right. It feels weird. It doesn't feel right. You check one, do it like a little test cut to see what the bark is looking like. And you're like, yep, I knew that was wrong. I'm not sure why I did that. And you keep on going along and then suddenly you feel like somebody went, hey, hey, look back here. Hey, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and you turn around and suddenly there's the perfect tree. The sun is shining down on it. You can hear angelic choruses in the background. It just feels right. And there was a communication that happened inside your bones when you feel that. And it's not just something that indigenous people do, which is why I don't want to mysticize us or romanticize or tokenize us with that. Mm-hmm. Because I've seen non-native people have that exact same response when they put that yeah. fe- those they put those feelers out. So it does sound woo-woo, it does sound hippy dippy, but it really isn't. It's something it's very- not, it's science. It's scientific and primal. <laughs> it's something that we feel on that sixth sense level that mm-hmm. we all know there's a sixth sense. We all know that. We all feel that spiritual, even agnostic and even atheistic people will feel those moments where they're like, oh, something felt right here. Something felt connected here. That's that sixth sense. And it happens more than just humans. It happens with animals. It happens with plants. It happens with minerals. It happens all the time. And we just don't have the knowledge anymore of tuning into that properly. Exactly. So I totally get you on that whole concept of like, it's, it feels woo-woo, but it really isn't. It's not woo-woo. And and just to like kind of elaborate on what I'm saying is like there are so much, there's so much more to get to know with these plants than the name. Yes. Especially <laughs> when the name is the, just made up. Yeah. And this is the problem with I think um kind of Western education is that like it's in it's ingrained in everything we do in school when we when we grow up when we go to public school the answer is always the most important part yeah but the the rest of it fuck that I guess (laughs) and so I I encourage people to like ask questions like uh, what is the life cycle of this plant how many Mm -hmm. years does it live for when does it drop its seeds Mm what are its flowers uh attracting what kind of pollinators are it attracting true true. um you know what's its root system like what plants are in direct competition with it does it like shade does it like sun and what kind of medicines does it carry and what kind of history how did the plant get here 
And what are its stories? What's the folklore behind the plant? Like folklore is so beautiful of plants. Like the yeah. chicory plant, which is like my flower. It's the, in German, it's called Wevegarten, which translates to wayside plant, I think. And it, mm. there's like an old legend in, in Germany about how chicory was like, uh, this woman who was left by her lover to war and she sat on the side of the road in grief and cried and then she died and chicory flowers grew out of her body so that's mm. why chicory is always at the side of the road and the wayside plant I like that. I like that. <laughs> yeah so there's just so much more to get to know about plants the name is nothing the name is like an arbitrary concept yeah <laughs> That's just part, like the, the way I explained it to one person, because they were talking about like different, and this has nothing to do with plants. It's actually species of fish. We were having this conversation the other day because we saw rainbow trout in a creek and I called it a rainbow trout and they said, actually, it's a steelhead. And I was like, well, here's the taxonomic name of both of those species. And it's the exact same thing. You can call yep. it a, uh, you can call it a steelhead. I'll call it a rainbow trout. They're the exact same fish. So what fucking matters with the name? Yeah. That fish is what we're both talking about. Let's stop talking about the name and look at that fish and think about that fish and what is it doing. Mm -hmm. And you can translate that to plants. You can translate to that to other animals. You can translate that to people. Like we put labels on so many things and I'm very tired of that perspective. The, I've had this conversation with science because science itself is a non-dogmatic, non, uh, non, how can I play, put this? It belongs to every culture. Science mm -hmm, belongs to mm -hmm. every single culture. We listen to Western science all the time. Mm -hmm. Western science is a perspective of science. It is just yeah. one view of science. And Western science is very, uh, the best way I can describe it is very divisive. It breaks things down and divides things down. So we're going to talk about the human body. And we're going to say that there's a respiratory system, the circulatory system, the skin and other organ systems, the digestive system, the nerve, nervous system, all these things. The indigenous perspective of science is everything is connected and everything is so intertwined that we can't separate it. And so when we talk about something like Seneca snake root, oh, that's not my chair. Nikki says my chair is squeaking, but it's actually uh, my wife's upstairs doing some laundry. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> it's all good. It's all good. Um, Seneca snake root as a plant, we will say that it's good for your respiratory system, but the way it gets to your respiratory system is through your stomach and nervous system. So what is it? Is it a medicinal plant for your nervous system, your respiratory system, mm -hmm. or your digestive system? It's all three. It, it, it irritates the, uh, the stomach lining, which connects to the sacral nerve, which causes you to cough mm -hmm. and it makes you bring things up out of your lungs. So yes, it's at the end of the day, a respiratory medicine, but it worked with all those things together to get to that point. So we can't just label things and divide things and separate things. They're all connected. And I think that's really important when we're talking about plants, especially, but anything really. Yeah. I also love, I, I will give a little bit of credit to like the, the names for plants, like the Latin names. They're very cool. Sometimes they translate to things like the little yellow flower that makes you cough, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so it tells you a, a little bit of a story and I'm would sure that that's, be, would that be Colt's foot? Yeah. <laughs> I figured as well. I figured. I always heard from uh what's her name? Susan Weed. Yeah. Yeah. I always heard her say Tusalago far far is like cough go far away. Yeah, yeah. That's how she always <laughs> describes it. I'm like, I like that. But my yeah. fit my favorite we should do an episode on our favorite scientific names one of these days because okay. mine's, mine's the cow parsnip. Heraclium. Heraclium. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds like such a badass gladiator name. Like it's it's great. 
the Her- Heracles of Maximus. Like it sounds so badass. It's like that I would, would be a- your plant fighting name. I would name a kid that. Like this is why I'm not allowed to name children. Is I would name <laughs> them that. I would name them like Heraculum Maximum immediately. And it's like, what does that mean? What does that mean? Well, car- cow parsnip, but it actually means like the ma- the, the strongest of Heracles or Heracles' mm. club and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the scientific name and names are important because you look at things like St. John's wort. What does wort mean? It's the it's the old, mm. it's, people say it's old Germanic, but it's actually old English through the Germanic, so through Anglo, uh, talking about plant. It just means like a helpful plant. A like pal- yeah, something you would use as medicine. Yeah, and then you got bane. When you ever see the word bane in a name, it's it means, people are like, oh, it means poison. No, it means death. The Batman movie should tell you that. Exactly. The only villain that could straight up break Batman's back is named Bane. <laughs> and then you have Baneberry, you have Henbane, you have Cowbane, you have Dogbane. Dog Bane. And these are telling you like, this is toxic enough to kill that animal or toxic enough to kill in period. Mm-hmm. And it's it's an important word to learn. And I, I've always joked, like when you're learning botany, it's not even a joke. I'm kind of serious about it. When you're trying to learn botany to the point of medicines and food, learn the poisonous ones first because mm-hmm. that list is a lot shorter and if you know all of those then in theory everything else is safe yeah to one degree or another yeah so yeah names and, and everything and learning the plant and learning the relationship with that plant is extremely important so i agree that this should have been the first thing we talked about I'm, I'm on board with that <laughs> this is good and it happens over time. It happens slowly. You know, it's not going to happen yeah. in one day. And I would encourage people before they go foraging, just start building those relationships. Get to know five plants really well. Mm-hmm. Just five. And and their life cycles and all about them. And, and then start harvesting. Because it's a lifelong journey. I know people are probably really excited to go foraged and stuff. But yeah. it's good to have a knowledge base going out there and kind of some connection to the plants that you're you're harvesting totally it's important so from learning about the plants and getting a relationship with the plants what's the next thing we should think about with ethical foraging and like sustainable harvest we're, we're gonna be doing this is actually a two-part series that nikki uh, nikki and i are gonna do the first part's about ethics of foraging and then the next part is gonna be about sustainable foraging so how to actually go out there and what are you looking for and all that but mm-hmm. let's dive into the ethics first like so what is one of the first things that comes to mind for you when you're like, okay, people are doing this either in an unethical way or a bad way. What's the first <laughs> thing that comes to mind with foraging on that? Like, what's an example? Uh, over harvesting native plant species. A hundred percent. I agree with that. And l- let's talk about leeks then. Yeah, they're, they're <laughs> the most popular one right now. It happens all year round. Foraging happens. It's an annual, it's a cyclical thing. Everybody goes out and forages. But the first thing that everybody wants to forage is leeks. Hmm. The, the the ramps the wild leaks and uh there's a lot of different names for them as we said i'm not going to dive into all of them but they're strangely enough first but since we're talking about relationships i t- i messaged nikki like three days ago while i was getting my notes prepared for this episode and i was like holy crap guess what i found out the order that the leek and the chive and the canada the meadow uh, the meadow garlic and all those like aliens are part of their their genus is alien but their order is asparagus and so I looked up the asparagate order and I was like, that's asparaguses and orchids. And yes, like you could say that leeks and other, and other are related to orchids and they're part of the orchid family. Sure. But the order is asparagus. 
and that just blew like it actually broke my brain for like 10 minutes and i was like i need to contact nikki and like show her this because this is <laughs> confusing and i like back checked all my information I'm like no it is asparagus they're from the asparagus order you never know it'll change in the future so uh, taxonomists love to change things up <laughs> yeah they do <laughs> there's i was just baffled that was a chair squeak that was just so baffling to me and i was like this is interesting that they're part of the asparagus uh, order not family but the order and they both kind of come up around this time and they're both something that people kind of can over harvest very easily by just taking everything before it gets a chance to go up and do its job and the reason why that's so important to build a relationship because then you discover things about like how long leeks actually take to reproduce yeah and germinate and their kind of reciprocal relationship with the animals around them or you know what kind of animals rely on them even yeah yeah there's a great example that you're talking about deer the other night with the leeks mm -hmm. they how mm -hmm. they have a relationship and you're saying that they they eat the leek leaves of course and everything else they can they'll actually ch like churn the soil up to get some of the roots and tubers and that actually in turn allows the seeds that are in the seed bank to get some fresh soil that's loose and mm -hmm. they can start to germinate from that point on exactly. and so in theory we can do the same by digging in, in very selected patches, you can dig the bulbs up, especially when they're real thick. Like when yeah. there's like leak bulb on top of a leak bulb on top of a leak bulb, and it looks like this crazy, like almost like a ginger root or a ginger yeah. rhizome. Yeah, you can take some bulbs out of there and pickle those and make your pickled onions and have some fun with uh, locks and everything else later on with cooking. But for me, I've always been the person that's like, okay, how can I do the least amount of impact on these plants? Mm -hmm. And I, I told this story the other night where we had a spot 12 years ago beside my camp where there used to be thousands of leeks, like acres of leeks. And then two things happened, overharvesting and introduction of invasive species. And it came down to people were digging all the bulbs up and they're taking them home to pickle and they're taking them home to, to cook their meals with. And then the ground was so disturbed and ATVs and trucks were coming into the area and they were carrying seed banks with them that would then get dispersed in the area. And now we had like 10 acres of garlic mustard which is hedge garlic. It's a European, specifically a Western European plant that actually is a seasoning and a herb and has all these other beautiful attributes to it, but it's not native. And because it was in this beautiful, rich, loamy soil, it took over and started to kill the leek patches because it carries a toxin, not really a toxin, but a chemical in its roots that makes it much more hospitable. It's allelopathic. Yes, thank you. I couldn't remember the word. I actually Googled it the other night. Um, it doesn't actually kill the other plants, but it makes the soil more hospitable to garlic mustard, mm -hmm. less hospitable to the other plants. So it chooses in a way to make it less competitive for that plant. And then they themselves can grow so tightly that they shade out all the other plants around them. Yeah. And we lost 10 acres, eight or 10 acres of leeks, bloodroot, may apple like even the may apples got shaded out by this garlic mustard which is astounding when you look at how big of a may apple is and we lost 10 acres in our forest and so in those 12 years since i realized that i was pulling up or trimming off garlic mustard by the droves cooking with that almost exclusively and leaving the leeks alone until seed season and then i would disperse the seeds where i tore up all that or cut up all that garlic mustard and I didn't pick leeks for years and I wouldn't mm -hmm. show people that patch and anybody I did find in that patch who was from the community. I, I'm not going to tell them that they can't harvest. Yeah. I showed them better ways. And so a lot of people down here now just pick one leaf from, from each plant or one out of every five plants, depending how, you know, naked the patch is. 
And that patch 12 years ago was the size of my wife's car, mm-hmm. very small footprint. And now it's the one patch of the size of my entire basement. And then it's now chained in with other patches that I found and dispersed seeds on. And now we have close to about a half an acre of just leaks on the forest floor, which is just so beautiful. See, this is great. I like personally, I don't want to call anybody out here, but like yep. personally, I believe that if you're not actively working to help the the uh, reproduction of in endangered, I guess, plant species threatened that you're sure. threatened uh, plant species that you're harvesting, you should not be foraging for them at all. Hundred percent, hundred percent. Like I agree with that wholeheartedly. <laughs> and there's like we said this on the other episode on the live show. People think there's this there's this point where people would be like, well, I'm not going to forage anything. I'm not going to have any interaction on the, in the wild. Cause I want to leave that for nature. And I want to, I want to let it be like Eden. I want to leave that paradise alone. Mm-hmm. I'm of the belief that we left Eden when we left the Pleistocene and it became the Anthropocene. Mm-hmm. When we wiped out the megafauna across Eurasia and North America and started to severely change the landscape, we can no longer call it Eden. North America has been modified for tens of thousands of years by humans. Yeah. It is n- the, the first accounts of North America on the East Coast by European explorers was this park-like environment where everything was perfectly balanced and there was no thickets of brush. There was no overgrown areas. It was mm-hmm. just massive mature nut-bearing or fruit-bearing trees and then massive patches of fruiting body shrubs and plants that you'd gather for food and they described it as this perfect park-like estate and they described it as eden-like and then only in the last 40 years has anybody acknowledged the fact that native peoples did Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. we engineered that we built that garden the forest we call like one of the names for like a a meadow or a uh, a plant-rich environment is kidagon or gidagon depending on your dialect and it's basically describing a garden yeah. Like you could just call it like when I work in my garden, that's kidagon. That's a kidagon right there. It's a garden. And we describe that exact same word for those meadows and savannas and plant rich environments that are all around us. That's there is no separation in our perspective as indigenous people. Yeah. And so trying to divide again, going back to that dividing and mm-hmm. separating, it doesn't work because this landscape needs to have human involvement. Yeah. Wild rice thrives. Monoman, we did a Monoman episode back in the summer. Check that one out, folks. The Good Seed episode, Manoma, The Good Seed. I think it was like episode 20. We're at episode like 64 now. This is... Actually, I think this is episode 62. I believe we're doing episode 62 right now, (laughs) which is like freaking insane. We're almost on our anniversary in like a week or so. And we got to have a party. (laughs) We got to have a party. We're going to do a Patreon uh, party. We're going to let all of our patrons jump in with us and do a Zoom call thing. Yeah. We're going to get together and celebrate. I think we're going to do that. Pro- I think it's on the, I think it's this Wednesday is our, is our uh, official anniversary. Are you available for that, Nikki? Yeah. Let's do it. Let's do oh, it. Oh, heck yeah. I'm available. We'll set that up. I'll send this. <laughs> we'll set up a Zoom link and we're going to send that on Patreon to all of our supporters. And if you want to be involved in the party and the celebration, become a patron. <laughs> it only costs $1 a month. So you can definitely do that. See, I'm getting better at promoting the Patreon. I don't you are. Need, you don't need I'm to very jump proud. Me, I'm either. very proud of you. <laughs> uh, I'm, getting, I'm getting more and more used to it. It's, it's getting better. But uh, yeah, when it comes down to it, like we've been doing this for 62 episodes now. Uh, but the Monoman episode I was talking about, we did an episode on that, talking about the ecology of the Monoman and how important it is to the environment. But something I kind of kept touching on, but not really diving into is the fact that 
Manoman will not grow well without humans. Mm -hmm. It needs our relationship. It needs our involvement. Uh, when we go out and harvest rice with those ricing sticks, those, uh, those uh, what some people call rice knockers, uh, those two cedar saplings that are uh, sticks that we've carved down, we only get 60% of what we hit with that. The other 30% gets dumped into the lake. And yeah. so we're actually the ones that are seeding that lake as we go. And it's, it's in a, in a balance. We're taking 60%, excuse me, the other 30% gets dumped into the lake and it allows that seed to get down there into the seed bank and grow the next year. Uh, same thing with apples, in my opinion, same thing with almost any fruit that you go out in the woods and find. Uh, I'm also the, the joking mind that if you're eating a lot of raspberries and blueberries, you better be pooping outside just like a <laughs> to make sure that poop that the, the, that those seeds get back into the seed bank. Cause a lot of us poop in a toilet and it goes into a septic tank or a sewer mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and it just goes back to a water treatment plant and never becomes part of the ecology again. And I'm not saying that people should be shitting all over their yard. That's not hygienic. That's not beneficial, but there's ways you can get around that and be part of the ecology and, and do things in the right way. Yeah. So, and it goes back to this idea of having relationship. Yeah. Like you have a relationship with the wild rice. And so you know how to help it as a plant totally. and have that reciprocal relationship. You have a better understanding of it. And it's like that garlic mustard thing mm -hmm. that we were also talking about. Like garlic mustards, the seeds stay dormant in the soil for up to 10 years, but only sprout once disturbed. Yep. And now you've got cities organizing garlic mustard pulls where they're pulling the roots up, which is just disturbing the soil further, making the garlic mustard issue worse. Thrive. They're making yeah. it thrive. They're making it thrive. And then there's also studies that say if you leave a patch of garlic mustard untouched, like you just block off the area, nothing can go in for 10 years, it will go away on its own. Mm -hmm. So there's like having relationships as a human with the land is so important to understanding. It's like when people brought, what are those frogs? The cane toads? <laughs> yeah, to Australia. To Australia? <laughs> Try and deal with the aphids and insects in their Yeah, gardens. and if yeah. they had any kind of like basic understanding of like the that that toad and the relationship it could have with that ecosystem, they wouldn't have done it. Nope. I, I, I call, so that is a very common part of like modern Western ecology. And I call it the little old lady syndrome. And what that is, is the little old lady swallowed a fly. So we have, let's, let's start off with, we have ash trees across Canada, Western, mm -hmm. Eastern Canada, mostly. And then we brought in pallets of wood from the Manchurian Peninsula of Asia. And those pallets were made of ash from that, that region called Manchurian ash or the West or the Asian black ash. And when they brought it over, it had an insect in it called the emerald ash borer. And the emerald ash borer was in the wood. And when it came out of the wood, it was surrounded by ash trees that had never, ever experienced this kind of insect predation before. And the, in, the borers then got into the wood, it got into the bark, bored their way through, gave, laid their eggs, the larvae hatch, the, ha the hatchlings go in and start boring these zigzagging S-shaped holes all through the cambium and basically dry the tree out. They basically cut off its supply of sap and eventually the tree just dies from crown death all the way down and the wood is just standing there dead and then somebody cuts it up into firewood and moves it somewhere else and now it starts mm -hmm. to <laughs> And so what the Canadian government has, has recommended they do is they get this wasp from Japan. 
and they're going to introduce this wasp from Japan, and it's going to prey on those borer beetles, and it's going to inject, uh, basically like any other predatory wasp, it's going to inject the the larva and the beetles, uh, or the beetles, and then their babies are going to grow in there and kill those, and they can eat them and all that kind of stuff. Cool. Then what? When, yeah. the, when, when that wasp runs out of out of borers to eat, what's it going to do next? Is it going to go after our native caterpillars? Is it going to go after our native beetles? Is it going to go after the native ash borers? There are native ash borers. They just have a balance with our ash trees that they have the antibodies or the, the, the chemicals to protect themselves. And there's a balance there. So are they going to go after them? Are we going to wipe out our native borers? Are we going to wipe out native insects? Mm-hmm. And then what are we going to do when that wasp is out of control? We're going to bring in I don't know, Mongolian crowned woodpecker. And it's going to come in and take care of all those wasps for us. Is that what's going to happen next? It's a little lady who swallowed a fly. She swallowed a fly, she swallowed a spider. Then she swallowed a bird. Then she swallowed a cat. Then she swallowed a dog. Mm-hmm. And it's 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 the exact same thing as the cane toads. It's the exact same thing as every time we try to fuck with the environment and think mm-hmm. that we are in control. It's absolutely absurd. And that kind of brings us to the whole invasive species aspect of the talk of like ethical harvesting and and everything else Mm -hmm. we do have these native plants that need to be protected but we also have these you know aggressive natives and we have these non-natives and we have these non-natives that are dangerous and non-natives that people think are dangerous and all that's what are we what is this shit Uh, i can explain that i think i'll do my best (laughs) so plants can basically be um divided into many categories Uh, First, we've got native plants. So that is a plant that's like vital to the balance of nature Mm -hmm. and has developed there for hundreds of thousands of years in a particular region. So you're always referring to a particular region when you say native plant. So you would say it's native to southeastern Ontario. Sure. Um, And then you've got invasive plants. So it's it's non-native. So it's not from the area where you are. And it's able to establish itself really well, grow very quickly, and it'll spread to the point where it disrupts um, other plant communities, other ecosystem or in ecosystems. Then you've got a non-native plant. That is a plant that is introduced with human help intentionally or accidentally um, in a new habitat where it wasn't previously found. Mm. And not all non-native plants are invasive. And actually many of them that are non-native are introduced to new places, cannot reproduce or spread readily without human help. Mm-hmm. Then you've got a naturalized plant, which is a non-native plant that does not need human help to reproduce and maintain itself. Um, and it also doesn't do harm to the ecosystem. So, for example, like a naturalized plant, um, like mullen, I think. I don't think I would say mullen. I would yeah. say mullen. Yeah, the common mullen. Yeah. We have Turkish mullen or something like that, or turkey mullen out in like California that's native. Yeah. But then there's like <laughs> here we have the common mullen from Eurasia. Yeah. yeah. And it's it's a cool one. I've always liked mullen plants because there's they have millions of seeds. Oh, millions so many. Of seeds. You find one of the dead stalks, you shake it on the snow and it just looks like you just covered it with black pepper. Yeah. There's so many seeds. <laughs> but do you see environments overwhelmed with mullen ever? No. And also, in fact, like naturalized plants will not they'll grow in human areas, human yep. disturbed areas. So you're not going to go into like the hardwood ephemeral areas and see these naturalized plants. Yeah. It's, you're going to see them in disturbed soil common. usually. And that's, yeah. and there was a, with mullen specifically, there's some interesting aspects of mullen where 
it's not just a naturalized species, but it's actually beneficial to the environment in multiple ways. It actually can help fix nitrogen back in the soil. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it can also uh, become shaded environment because of how large the leaves are for those understory plants that need shade and they can't be out in the open where people have done uh, cutting, where they've done wood cutting and cleared out a bunch of the canopy. Those mullins take over that space and then they make those big shady leaves that help protect those little orchids and little plants that require shady forest. Yeah. And then when it dies, it's a biennial. So it, draw, it goes up as a rosette the first year and the next year makes this big stalk, big flower, all that stuff. And then drops all of its millions of seeds and then it just dies. And if the soil has been reestablished and those native plants have kind of hardened up enough to become the dominant plant again, the mullein just goes away. Yeah. And then if that environment gets disturbed again, then the mullein shoots back up and does its job again. Yeah. So same I would with look the at burdock. As, same with burdock, as well as to a degree plantain. Yeah. I, uh, there is a native species of plantain, there Plantago rugelli. Yeah. It's yeah. The, the one with the stem purple on. stem. Yeah. Whereas the green one is the non-native that we, uh, the Cheyenne used to call white man's footprint because it followed the hard packed trails of the wagon train. Mm -hmm. And that's where the name came from. They, you just see out in the big prairie, this two rows of plantain going for miles. <laughs> and that's what it was, was just the seeds were falling off clothing and out of grain bags and dropping onto the hard packed. Trails. And it likes hard packed soil. Yeah. It doesn't like to be in loose, loamy ground. It, it yeah. needs that kind of hard ground to hold its roots together. Yeah. So I find that really kind of beautiful. Whereas like you look at invasive, like garlic mustard or dog strangling vine, especially mm -hmm. it can be really, really problematic. And then there's like the, in that naturalized category, non-native category, people are freaking out every summer about parsnip <laughs> and they call it wild parsnip. And they're like, this is an invasive species. Shouldn't be here. It's noxious as hell. It's going to kill us. It's going to take over the planet and we're not going to have any human life left. And the forests are going to be destroyed. Just to clarify, this is a feral parsnip. This is not a wild parsnip. And I, I, I'm as much as I was saying, like words don't matter. Mm -hmm. Semantics, semantics be damned. There is a big difference between feral and wild. Yeah. Wild means it came from the environment, and it's from that environment. Feral means it was domesticated, and it's now no longer domesticated. It's it's run it's running wild. So when mm -hmm. we say feral hogs. We're talking about pigs that broke loose from farm industry and got out onto the landscape and are wreaking havoc on the landscape. When we talk about parsnips, they are feral. They were actually French colonists had planted them as a root vegetable for them to eat. And then mm -hmm. when the British took over after the Plains of Abraham and all the history that happened with the French and Indian Wars, those colonies would have to get abandoned often. And a lot of the farms were left to go fallow and the seeds were viable enough that they could go into the wild. And so parsnip, and I'm just calling it parsnip because there is no need to call it wild. It is just a parsnip, has gone feral and it has gone out onto the land and it is a frequent plant that you see on wayside areas. And it is, yes, noxious. It has a sap in it, very similar to hogweed and cow parsnip that can burn your skin. All members of the carrot family have that toxin, even carrots. It's just so diluted and so minimal that you don't experience it much with carrots. And what I want to say about the parsnip is go talk to a parsnip farmer and ask them how often they get burned by their parsnips. <laughs> and that should tell you how worried you should be about uh, getting burned by those parsnips. Avoid them during the flowering stage because that's when the sap is really high in them. And if you bruise it or damage it or break it, yes, you can get the sap on you. 
But if you're trying to, if you're, A, it's not going to invade into areas that it's not native to. It's not going to do that. It finds wayside areas, overwhelms those areas for a while, and then it becomes part of a balance as the ground reestablishes and the plants reestablish their balance. And if you're really that worried about it, get a pair of long-handled loppers, wear a pair of gloves if you want to protect yourself, if you're really that worried, reach out really far and snip the flower heads off before they get a chance to ever go to seed. Yeah. And just keep doing that until you no longer see parsnip. And if you really want to help, eat the parsnip. It's a parsnip. It's just a parsnip. It's your your aunt or your grandmother cooks them every year for Thanksgiving. And you're like, no, thanks. I don't like that. It tastes funny. Eat it. Just eat the damn parsnip. Don't have to even grow it. Just that's something you can easily forage is these invasive species. Yeah. That we all have problems with. I'm the guy that always yells, eat your invasives. Do eat it. your if, invasives. If eat them all. Toxic, if they're not toxic, eat it. You can eat it. Parsnips, garlic mustard, these plants you can harvest in volume and not feel bad about damaging the environment totally. as long as you do it in the right way. When I pull up a parsnip root, I, I compact that soil as quick as I can. Not compact it, but put it back to where the way it was as quickly as I can. And I'll even bring a bag of seeds with me of, of native plants and dump them in that area to try and give them a head start. And things like that can be done to help that environment much more. There, there's so many ways to do this the right way. And people just, mm -hmm. they want to go after the native plants because that's what they've seen in books and they think it's really cool. But really the way that foraging can be used to a, an environmental stewardship advantage is by leaving the native plants alone and going after those invasive plants and using them to like, I'll, we, we've all seen in bushcraft, the steam pit method cooking with steam pits, which is where you dig a hole in the ground, you line it with rocks, you build a big fire in there, you burn it for a couple of hours, scrape out the ash and coals, and then put a bunch of leafy greens in there and then put your meat in there and your root vegetables and put in some more hot rocks and seal that shut and leave it for the whole day. And you come back to basically pressure cooked food that's nice and tender and falls off the bone and all that kind of right. stuff. And I've seen people fill it with leeks. And I've seen people go and get a bunch of basswood and burdock leaves and burdock. You can do it with too. I'm not saying don't do this with burdock, but they fill it up with those and they'll leave the garlic mustard alone. Go with a pair of shears or a knife or something and cut down all that garlic mustard. Don't rip it out by the roots. Just cut down the stems. Take that all with you, especially before the flowering stage, like early May into June. Take all that and line your steam pit with that. And there's two advantages. A, it's going to have a lot of water content in it. So it's make a good amount of steam. B, it's garlic mustard. It's going to taste so good and season all your vegetables and season all that meat. And it's going to taste absolutely delicious. And we do that at least once a year at the camp before COVID because we bring like 10, 15 people out. We dig a pit, line it with rocks, do the whole shebang. And it was great because we were cutting down garlic mustard. And it was an easy way for me to get a bunch of work done with a bunch of people and introduce them to this amazing food system but also help the environment a bit in volume. It's one of the few times that I can get like a bunch of people out to do work. Cause I'm like, Hey, I'm going to cook half a pig. Anybody want to come out and help me do that? Oh, by the way, we got to go gather all this garlic mustard to make sure we can line the pit. And it's just this easy way to make that happen. Such an easy way to do it. So yeah, there's a lot of ways we can go from there. When we're talking about like noxious weeds. Yes. You have your cow parsnip, which is a native plant. You have your yeah, I want to cover a three, a couple more. Sure, sure, let's do this. Yeah, there's a few more. Anyway. Um, 
there is like you were saying the other night there's opportunistic native plants yes so native plants that will take advantage of a disturbance in the soil and mm -hmm. spread quickly and outcompete other plants and then there's weed okay here's here's the kicker everybody a weed is not an invasive plant it is not a any of these things a weed is literally just a term for a plant that is not valued in the place where it is growing. So if you had a bunch of bloodroot, which is a native plant that is growing in your yard and you're like, I don't want this here, it would be considered a weed. Mm -hmm. So stop hating on weeds. It's just a human created term. It's just a plant that's in the wrong place. <laughs> and then there's noxious weeds. So a plant that is troublesome to, and particularly livestock or the interests of agriculture mm -hmm. so a noxious weed um, could also not be an invasive plant poison ivy yeah poison exactly. ivy is native and it's considered a noxious weed because of agriculture trying to grow around it and work around it and the cat the cattle don't get really impacted by it, but the farmer does yeah and those are the plant definitions just to like help people kind of figure out <laughs> and and d distinguish between all these plants mm -hmm. yeah there's there's a lot there's a lot of noxious weeds out there that are problematic to industry and that's the best way to kind of look at it. there's there's also like when we're talking about opportunistic native plants the first one that comes to mind is cattail it takes over wetlands so fast and it's actually like one of the biggest problems for the wild rice is is actually cattail and yellow pond lily these two mm. for or cow lily depending on which variety you're dealing with or which species um they take over wetlands and they can shade out the uh, the wet the water from those other native plants that are trying to thrive there cattail is a great way to introduce people to harvesting and foraging because you can dig up a lot of it as long as you do it in a safe environment and we touched mm -hmm. on that I, I don't want to touch on that too much but the main thing I want right. to get across is don't dig these things in parks. Don't dig up these plants or harvest these plants in areas where you're going to have pesticides, herbicides, anything like that in the last 30 or 40 years, because the roots can hold on to it that long and more, but also not along the sides of roads where you're going to have lead and potentially cadmium and mercury and copper and all these pollutants and petroleum getting into the water, because that's what cattail does best. It's a yeah. filter plant. It sucks up nutrients from around it and then holds on to it in the root system. So be very mindful of that. If you're going to be picking cattail, pick it way back in the wayside areas, far away from human habitation, preferably as especially human involvement. Uh, and you'll notice actually when you get into places where there's not a lot of human activity, there's not that much cattail because the environment yeah. balances itself out eventually. But cattail is a delicious food. Uh, actually, pollen. The pollen is amazing. Mm -hmm. I make pancakes with it. I'm still experimenting to see if I can get it to work as a sourdough. It's not working out so far, but it makes a really good bread. It makes a really good flour in general. Mm -hmm. the, the whole plant is edible at every stage of life. Pretty much as long as you can dig the roots in the, in the, in the season, you can eat that plant. It's the supermarket of the swamp, in my opinion. And uh, one of my favorite photos I have of me and uh, of Mickey being out in the woods with me is this photo from the Pine Project where we have all of them lined up on the side of a road with their 
feet covered in mud up to their knees and they're just all holding up their cattails like a fisherman holding their catch of the day <laughs> it's really fucking hard to dig up man <laughs> i love it it's 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 very very enjoyable it's an easy starch to get too yeah <laughs> it's it's a i find them a lot easier to dig up than a burdock like i was like like shoulder deep in that swamp yeah just tugging on something that was not budging <laughs> You just got to kind of loosen it as you go and take, yeah. take the time with it. It's a, it's a really fun plant to dig. And it's, it's something that's easily, easily cooked. Like you just take those roots. Don't have to even like clean them. You just throw them right on the coals of the fire until the outside is completely black. And then you rip off that black kind of uh, skin. And then inside is this just this starch covered fibers that are just so tasty. I, I, I compare them to like a mix of sweet corn and baked potato is the yeah, way I to kind of describe yeah. them. At one point I said sweet potato when I was younger and I was wrong. I, I didn't <laughs> taste like a sweet potato at all. But I was like, there's a potato-y starchiness to it, but it tastes kind of like corn. And so like, I like it. Yeah, it's totally like tapioca starch or something. Like it's yeah. very, very much starch. <laughs> and there's ways to process that where you just take the roots and dry them and then kind of release the fiber into, into a bowl of water. Mm -hmm. Kind of crush it and break into all that, kind of milk the root in a sense till all that white goo is in the water and then you let that balance and then you pour off the water and you can dehydrate and that's starch that you can then make breads with you can use as a soup thickener all that kind of stuff i'm trying to continue on as nikki's laughing at what i just said <laughs> and it's very challenging to do because she's laughing really hard and i can see her face so it's uh yes we're going to milk the root until a bunch of white stuff gets in the water and then you're going to process that into starch and uh consume that you're gonna put that in your mouth oh i'm 12 we're both 12 yeah i was laughing i had to call chris gilmore earlier and uh the numbers six and nine were in his phone number and i was like yeah. <laughs> i was like yeah, nice i'm such a child I, I literally said that out loud in front of my wife and she's like did you just do that i'm like yep yeah you know what one time i had a, a my boss she was on the phone to ceridian and she had to give like her payroll number and then she goes p p and then i just lost it and she laughed so hard she had to hang up mid-sentence <laughs> it was the best <laughs> moment <laughs> i love it that's amazing anyway um, yeah, there's there's a lot of aspects of like foraging that are like easy to get into and aren't going to devastate the environment if you do yeah you're just, just do your due diligence, learn that relationship and learn the ecology and understand what the plant needs. And exactly. you can do a lot. You can go long distance with that. Yeah. It's rest. It's about reciprocity. And there's so many yes. different ways that you can have a reciprocal relationship with plants. For example, like helping their population to thrive or mm -hmm. the opposite of like stopping their population from thriving because they're threatening the ecosystem or I what I like to do a lot is like pruning when I harvest medicines like say I'm taking bark medicines mm -hmm. I'll prune the branches that are in the way and mm. they're they're in conflict with other branches and the trees not getting to grow properly because yeah. there's these branches um offering things to the plants mm -hmm. like uh a lot of something that the kids do on programs is that they'll water the plants from their water bottles is really cute mm. and that's like building reciprocal relationship when yeah. you're really young it's so cute <laughs> i just pee on them yeah you pee on them <laughs> go water a tree yep. uh you can like fertilize the soil yep um, there's uh there's an apple tree in my yard 
that I will dig, I found where its roots are in the soil and I'll dig holes between those roots. And then I'll go and find roadkill and just throw it in those holes and cover it up again. Cause that tree is like 130, 140 years old. Its roots have gone to its maximum. That tree's not growing anymore. It's just producing fruit. And over time, it's going to drain the, the nutrients in the soil around it. So I'm giving it these little like kickstarts every once in a while, every couple of years, I'll just drop some roadkill in there and it can eat that turkey or that squirrel or whatever is in that hole. Uh, similar when I'm planting new plants, when I go out in the woods, we often are doing plant restoration and ecology. Uh, we bring plants with us and we bring fertilizer or we bring compost with us and give them that head start to help them grow in those areas. And another step to that, when we're talking about like foraging, one of the most ethical ways to forage is to be a frugivore. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Don't go for the roots. Don't go for the stalks and the leaves. Go for the fruiting bodies of these plants. And so that and could only be, take a bit. Yeah, because there's other animals that still require them. And you know what? If like someone's given me this analogy before of like be like a deer. A deer doesn't just like sit at a patch of food and, and then like devastate it. Like they browse as they just move mm. through the land, you know? Um, so just be like a deer. Totally. And there's like we go, we've got apple trees in our yard. We got there's wild apples all around us because this where I live is recovered agriculture is a lot of what central Ontario is because this is where I don't want to get too much into history because it's not really what we're here for but back in the 1700s when the when the British conquered the uh, the French and I'm saying conquered they took over Quebec and everything else and they took over upper Canada and lower Canada and all that they brought in a lot of immigrants they brought in a lot of Scottish and Irish immigrants because of the Highland removals and I talked about this briefly before as well the highland evictions or the highland removals was basically british aristocrats and noblemen saying hey i want a bigger parcel of land but there's no room left in london so i'm going to go up to scotland and ireland and i'm going to rip the roofs off these people's houses in the middle of winter and say leave or die in the cold and then when they fled those noblemen would then take over the property and build that into their estate and have these massive uh, massive lawns and Golfing came from that and all that kind of stuff. Well, golf existed before that. But anyways, all these refugees had to go somewhere. And so they went to Canada and they went to the colonies. And when they got to Canada, they got to places like York or Toronto. And those were English dominant cities. And they're like, we don't want these dirty Irishmen and filthy Scotsmen living with us, which is horrible bigotry. Nonetheless, that's what they said. And so they kicked them out of those areas and sent them into farmland that was not great farmland. And that was central Ontario. So Halliburton, the Muskokas, you go into Peterborough, there's places like Smith, Ennismore. The families that live around here are names like MacDonald, McIntyre, McFarlane, all these names, very Scottish and Irish Gaelic names because of a reason. Their, their ancestors were driven out of their homes and came here and tried to make a living where they could. And so when you drive like up through Perry Sound or up through Kawartha Highlands, you'll see these old fallow fields full of juniper and full of old apple trees and all this stuff. And you're like, wow, why, what, what happened here? It's because the soil wasn't that good for Eurocentric style farming mm -hmm. and it just didn't work for them. Whereas the indigenous populace here thrived. And eventually you see Scottish or Irish settlements right next door to what eventually become reserves. And there's a reason for that because they were learning from the indigenous populace. But now we have all these apple orchards that have gone feral and I'll go and pick apples in the fall 
I've got an apple picker, this little hooked tool that I can reach up and pull the best apples off. And I don't take all of them. I just, I fill up my bucket and that's all I take from that little orchard patch. And I go home with those, dehydrate them or turn them into jellies or apple jam or whatever, apple sauce. I couldn't remember the word applesauce. That's how tired I am today. <laughs> all you shouldn't things. be tired. You have a double shot. I have two double shots and a coffee in me. Yeah. That's <laughs> a lot of caffeine, but now I'm crashing a bit, I think. Um, tobacco snuff. Tobacco snuff time. I don't know where I put it. Uh, but anyways, <laughs> those kinds of fruiting body options. So we pick berries and we don't dig up the whole raspberry, the whole blueberry to get those berries. And we leave enough out there to make sure that the birds and the insects and the animals can get them as well. But we take what we need. And another step of that is other fruiting bodies. Mushrooms are completely cool to pick. If they're safe, let's make that very clear. You have to have 110% accuracy on your identification with fungi. Um, Puffballs, chanterelles, lobster mushroom, hen of the woods, chicken chicken of the the woods, woods, uh, morels. Pheasant back. Pheasant back or dryad saddle. Yeah, we have morels coming up in the next few weeks in my Mm -hmm. area. And I know where my patches are. The number one thing you can do wrong with picking fungi is picking in an area that other people are picking in, not because you're going to overwhelm taking the fruiting body, because as long as you take them and let the spores get out, they're fine. It's the compaction of the soil from all those people walking. The foot traffic is the danger there for fungi. Walking all over the ground and compacting that soil so that the mycelium, their root systems can't travel and send nutrients back and forth and have that relationship with the trees and plants around them. Because that's what fungi do best is they build relationships with the plants and trees around them, especially the woody plants. Mm-hmm. They build it with their if mycelium. If you haven't read The Hidden Life of Trees, oh, do it. <laughs> amazing book. I've got the I've got the abridged, the, the shortened version, and I keep trying to find the big, big version. That's hard to find a copy of, but I love the shortened version that I have in my collection. Absolutely beautiful book. And beyond that, talk, listen to Paul Stamets. And even though he's kind of kooky and kind of out there with some stuff, He's got a lot of cool science backing him on a lot of the mycelium relationships with Mm -hmm. shrubs and trees to the point that that's what I'm doing in my so-called food forest in my garden is I'm putting down wood chip and I'm introducing uh, wine cap mushrooms and I'm getting logs of ironwood and oak that are cut down for other reasons for other resources. I'm taking the scraps of those and I'm inoculating them with chicken of the woods. I'm inoculating the hen of the woods. I'm inoculating them with oyster mushrooms to let that grow and thrive and build that relationship in the soil and the, and the logs to let the trees like my apple trees and my service berry trees and my red currants and my black uh, elderberry all thrive and really build up their relationship with one another and do well. And that kind of comes to another part that you and I were talking about. You mentioned it earlier, instead of foraging agriculture, farming, agriculture, gardening. Growing food. And you know what? It's a really important point that I should have made before too, is like, Ask not what the plants can do for us, <laughs> but ask what we can do for them. Hell yeah. <laughs> and what I mean by that is like, we first always go to the utilitarian uses of plants. Mm-hmm. And if I'm meeting a plant for the first time, and my intention is like, I'm going to eat you. <laughs> like, that's very, that's, that's, very Norman, that's very Ed Gein or fi- a very uh, Albert Fish. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I just met you. I'm going to make you dinner. And this is crazy. Let me Gacy. eat you. <laughs> yep. um, so, yeah, it's just like, it's a mind-blowing thing when you, it's like having those re- toxic relationships. That's a toxic relationship where you're friends with somebody just because of what they can do for you. 
Yes, that is 100% exactly what the relationship with a lot of people with foraging and plants are. Yeah. And that's a lot of relationships that I try to avoid as well in my life. Yeah. That's a a great analogy of exactly what it's a toxic relationship where you're just a toxic relationship when you just take and there's no reciprocity there. Anyway, I just wanted to like hammer home that point. Mm -hmm. Um. (laughs) I like that. That's a great, great breakdown of like what we need to avoid as a relationship. We, We need to have healthy reciprocal relationships with these with the environment it's not just that plant but the entire environment it's in is we have to build so like i'll even like walk barefoot when i'm mushroom picking or i'll wear moccasins or sandals instead of wearing hard packed boots that are like heavy duty hiking boots or army boots or something that are going to pack the soil down i can walk a little quieter and walk a little gentler when i'm picking my puffballs or my chanterelles or whatever it is i'm going after and that's another part is just slow the hell down Mm-hmm, just mm-hmm. slow down and really look at what like I see people all the time this is with hunting this is with fishing this is with but it, there's already regulations for those like you have daily bag limits for small game and, and waterfowl you have daily bag you have annual bag limits for how many turkey or deer you can take but when we get into plants there's really no regulated yeah. methods there's yeah. ones you're allowed to pick and ones you're not allowed to pick I believe in the province of Quebec now it's practically impossible to gather leeks yeah it's illegal yeah it's it's they because of how many people have done that and the ginseng and ginseng and that's something that's Mm -hmm. happening in ontario as well as like you have to guard ginseng patches Mm -hmm. because of how many people pick it for the market and there's i i get very annoyed when i go to farmers markets and i i go to farmers markets not as much during the pandemic but because i avoid the city like a plague because there's yep. a plague because um, there's a plague yeah <laughs> and but before then we would go at least once a week to the farmer's markets there's two here in peterborough one on saturday and one on wednesday i believe and i would go in and i would get so frustrated every spring into summer where i would just see bucket loads of fiddleheads bucket loads of leeks dug up chaga mushroom by the pound for sale mm-hmm, all mm-hmm. these things dug up and i look at that and people say oh come on that's not that big of a deal they're they're foragers and wild crafters they're probably being very sustainable no i want to remind people the term of market hunter market hunting is why we do not have bison in the numbers they used to be market hunting is why we don't have beaver. actually that's that's not true is why we had beaver problems in canada why the beaver population crashed by the 1900s and has only recovered in the last 40 years beaver today and this is something that's i'm very proud of this because i'm a trapper we've had the mind of the trapper episode about a month and a half back Beaver populations are now what we believe are the historic numbers at contact. That's amazing. But for 300 years prior, that was not the case. Yeah. We crashed their numbers. We crashed the population. There are less than 400,000 bison left in North America. And most of them are on farms because we're still getting their meat in hides. Yeah. we, We market hunted these animals next to extinction. We extirpated them from their native habitats. We devastated them. There is no difference between a passenger pigeon and what we did to them and what we're doing to ginseng and leeks. Yeah. There is no difference. You cannot show me any difference. We have screwed up. 
and we need to fix that screw up. We can't go back to Eden. We left Eden at the anthrop at the beginning of the. Anthrop. Yeah, there is no there Eden. Is no going there back. never has been Eden, Eden except there, for the whatever you're talking about. <laughs> the, the Pleistocene. So, so for those that don't know what the Pleistocene, the Pleistocene was when we had megafauna across North America yeah. and Eurasia, when there were mastodons, mega um, uh, megadons. Wow, what the heck is that? Mastodons, mammoths, uh, megalaceros, the Irish elk when we had giant ground sloths, when we had giant armadillos, when we had Castoroides, the giant beaver, all these animals, the world was in complete balance in the ecology. And then the Anthropocene began when hominids left Africa and spanned across Eurasia and spanned into the Americas. And it took very short time for humans to get from Eurasia to South America, like less than 2000 years of like the Bering Land Bridge existing to get humans to the bottom. And we started to wipe out things at like incredible rate. And since then, the entire world has changed. We no longer have been in Eden for a minimum of 50,000 years. We have changed. We have left Eden. We are now in the wilderness and we are changing that wilderness into what we are. The wilderness doesn't even exist. It really doesn't. <laughs> the, the only places that are truly wild are places where humans aren't really involved anymore. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and have changed. And frankly, like people talk about rainforest, uh, loss of rainforest habitat. I want to remind people that when you see those pictures of like Mayan temples surrounded by jungle, that is not what those Mayan temples look like at, con- at, at pre-contact. When it was pre-Columbian down there, those areas were cornfields. Mm-hmm. Those jungles were cornfields. The jungle has returned because people aren't there anymore doing what they did. They're still there. People are still involved and they still use the jungle and they still farm, but not like it used to be because we want to keep that pristine quote unquote habitat. Uh, in England, the, all the rivers are basically boarded in and like tailored to look as, as pristine as possible for the, the noblemen and everybody that live in the United Kingdom. There's no wild rivers in the United Kingdom. They're all built the way that they, are, they look to help manage the environment. North America is the exact same. We have changed the environment permanently. It is never going back. Yeah. But that doesn't mean we have to keep fucking with it. That doesn't mean we have to keep yeah. messing it up. And as we said on the, the episode of Paul McCartney, foraging can be like hunting is one of the tools of how we can take care of that environment. Foraging can be part of that as well. We just don't have the regulations yet to really maintain that and yeah. keep that in the right way. And so learning how to slow building relationships, build relationships, people are like, well, you've hammered it home already, guys. No, we haven't. We haven't. We haven't is, though. Nikki and I say this shit all the time and this is still happening. I will yeah. become Alec Jones if I have to, to get you people to listen to me. I will yeah, if you're sitting calls. here say thinking, but I don't want you to think, but I want you to listen. <laughs> So you're probably also thinking like, then what do we forage? What do we do? We'll probably get that into that in the next episode. Caleb and I will talk about like what to grow and what to forage for and good ways to do that. And we've Um, hit a lot of them already. We've talked on a a bunch of them. I've mentioned a few, you've mentioned a few, but there's a lot more to go. And there's a lot of great, beautiful ways to, to go with this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So I think the next valuable part for people is like maybe giving them an introduction in how you build a relationship with plants sure uh, by talking about botany ah, this is ah. good let's go with this let's go with this i love you, this you lead i'll just become your color commentator you go okay cool 
<laughs> so first I'm going to talk about plants, okay? Um, we are going to be talking about plants this whole time, but I'm going to talk about flowers too and the history of flowers, stuff like that. So first of all, plants, there's annuals, there's perennials, there's biennials, and there's ephemerals. So annuals are plants that, I always get this mis mixed up. Annuals are plants that grow once and then yeah. die. Yeah. One year, die. Perennials are plants that grow every year for a number of years. Biennials grow for two years. Usually in their first year, they don't grow a stem. They don't grow a flower. They're just like a rosette in the ground. <laughs> you think of burdock or mullein. Garlic mustard. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then there's ephemerals, which are plants that are, take opportunity of the lack of a tree canopy and hang out at the forest floor until the leaves grow in. So they're mm. here for a short time, for a good time, not a long time. What's a good example of that? Uh, wild leeks. <laughs> instant, instant one. Bloodroot, trout lily. Uh, mm -hmm. Trout lily is a great one for that. Yeah. They should be coming up right now. Like you should I have them. I just saw the leaves like two days ago. Yeah. I'm excited. And I think this part is really important to know because it's like, then you know, like, okay, I can do this and this, this plant's an annual so I can take its root because it's not coming back next year. Or this biennial plant is, I need to harvest the root in the first year. Yeah. And then there's also like these ephemerals, I shouldn't touch them because they're usually native plants <laughs> yeah. and then you get those you get those um, uh, and then perennials. yeah exactly and then there's like two different kinds of plants that they're divided into there's categories there's monocots and there's dicots okay so basically what this boils down to is monocots are plants where one seed leaf emerges from the ground and dicots are when two seed leaves emerge, emerge from the ground. Monocots usually have parallel veins. So think of a plantain leaf. The mm. veins run from the, to the tip. Um, and dicots, the, the veins branch. Mm. In monocots, the root systems are usually very fibrous. In dicots, usually is, is a tap root. Uh, petals and combinations of three are characteristic of monocots. So think of lilies. That's an example. And here's a fun trick. If you're thinking, Nikki, lilies have six petals. Uh-uh-uh. They have three petals. So if you look at a daylily, for example, you look on the inside of the daylily. There's three petals on the inside, three petals on the outside. But what you don't know is that the three petals on the outside are actually sepals disguised as petals. Hmm. So... You can see that in a trout lily. And some lilies, like trillium, yep. they only have their three petals. Yeah, yeah. And green sepals. So it's not that confusing when you look at those. Right. Um, and then in dicots, petals in combinations of four or five. And like, for example, a rose or a mustard green. Yep. And... Basically, it's just like this categorization of plants that I don't know why it's important, but <laughs> it's really just an interesting fact. Um, and the monocots have one seed capsule, which is like called a cotyledon. Cotyledon? I can't remember how to say it. And, and the dicots have two, and that's what creates the one versus two seed leaves. Anyway, okay. 
So there's like a little bit about plants. And then I want to talk about flowers because flowers are so fucking interesting. Okay. <laughs> so flowering plants, also known as angiosperms, um, they have been around for 130 million years. During the Cretaceous period is when they arrived. And so that's Stegosaurus very, and yeah, and that's period. very recent. If yeah. we were put all of Earth's history into one hour, flowering plants would have only existed for 90 seconds. On the flip side of that, you have non-flowering plants, which I'll talk about in a bit, which have been around longer on Earth than um, the, how do I word this? The world has had flowering plants. Why can't I think of this? Do you understand what I'm trying to say here? I think so, because we have like, if you think about like the, the there's been plants on the on the terrestrial portion of earth longer than any animal exactly been yeah on the earth. uh because and because of that you have things like horsetails and ferns that don't require mm -hmm. pollination because there was no animal that could pollinate them and therefore they put out spores before they develop seeds right say the yeah. fungi and then that's what we would uh, call the Carboniferous period. Kind of what I'm trying to say. Okay, what are you trying to do? Kind of. <laughs> you're, you're nailing some of the botany here, but I'm just trying to word myself. We have had flowers on this planet for less time than we have had plants. I don't know. Well, I'm going to forget this there, that there I ever were, said There that. were dinosaurs before flowers ever showed up. That's for damn sure. Yes, I'm just trying to <laughs> stress how short of a time flowers have it's okay it's okay it's an early day it's a stressful day for both of us <laughs> okay so these are the types of flowers okay mm -hmm. i love this because it kind of like throws like a wrench in people's preconceived notions of gender on this planet um so perfect flowers they're mm -hmm. also called bisexual flowers okay. so they are flowers that are self-pollinating so they have male parts and female parts in one flower on mm. the same structure so they're called perfect because they're like you can pollinate yourself and propagate yourself you have no problem here and then there's like unisexual or incomplete or imperfect flowers has only male or only female flowers mm. monoecious plants have male flowers and female flowers that are separate on the same plant so if you think about like a beech tree okay like it's got the dangly catkins and then it's got those um what are the other parts called oh no they look almost like a cone yeah they're like a little cone yeah same um, thing with alders same thing with birch yeah exactly all those members of the same family they have that similarly you see the alder catkins then you see the little like almost like a cone underneath yeah so the the catkins are the male parts and the cones are the female parts and I'm using male and female as like the term that science has used, but I really don't need like it. it doesn't really apply <laughs> to plants. It's we really anthropocentric. Of, we throw a lot of anthropocentric terminology on things that yeah. just don't make sense. Yeah. <laughs> and then there's dioecious plants that have just separate, like one plant is male, one plant is female. Mm -hmm. And then there are plants that can change their gender. Like Jack in the pulpit. Oh, yeah. So for four years, I think it starts off as male. And then if it's disturbed or after four years, it will change to female, which is mind boggling. Yeah. 
And then we go into the other ones. They're non-flowering plants that produce by spore or by cones. Mm. So technically in the botany world, cones aren't considered flowers. Some argue that, blah, blah, blah. But they're like so few. We started off this world with just non-flowering plants. And now we barely have any. Like mm-hmm. all of our plants mostly flower. So there's only a few plants on this earth that don't flower. So you might have like come across a, a plant once and been like, oh, this plant doesn't have a flower. It does. It's probably just hidden. Like grass, for example. People are like, grass doesn't flower. It does. <laughs> the little yeah. like wheat looking part at the top, that's a flower. Mm-hmm. It's just like a weird flower. <laughs> <laughs> so what, uh, are so- some no- what are some non-flowering plants that we could think of as examples? Ferns, mosses, club mosses, horsetails, liverworts, mm-hmm. and um, conifers, for example. <laughs> mm-hmm. And they will, they're so cool. I encourage you all to go look really closely at uh, like a clump of moss right now. Because you'll see these cool little structures. They look like little antenna coming off the yeah, moss. Yeah. And then if it's in the right season, you can like flick them. And then spores will puff off. And it's the same with the horsetails. Yeah. With Mm -hmm. the horsetails, you've got the female horsetails and the male horsetails. And the males, they really look very phallic. The male horsetail (laughs) parts, they're very phallic. (laughs) And the females have kind of like those hairs. Yeah. And they're like pink. Mm -hmm. They're phallic and pink. And then you can flick them and they release all these spores. It's really cool. Um. And then liverworts, those are friggin' wild. I had liverworts growing all over my, the concrete in my, in my yard when I lived in Toronto. And they look like some kind of, Google it right now, some kind of alien species. And they've got these like little cups and then these things that grow off of them that look like palm trees. And those are the, the, the reproductive parts. It's wild. Plant world's <laughs> wild. This is why yeah. I'm talking about this right now. Because this is helping you build a relationship to this because I'm really fucking excited. I hope you're just as excited listening to this. I am. I am. I hope our listeners are too. Yeah, that's who I'm hoping. I don't care if you're excited, Caleb. Fuck you you too, Nikki. Um, (laughs) And then there's uh, different types of flowers. So I love getting into the wild world of flowers. Like, for example... Um, if you pick up a dichotomous key field guide for a flower you're trying to identify, it will ask you if the flower is irregular or regular. Mm. And regular just means it's radially symmetrical. So any way you flip it in half or cut it in half, it'll be a, a mirror image of itself. Right. Not to say it, sh- it doesn't have an even number of petals. It's just got the same size petals going around the center. Mm. And then there's irregular flowers, which are basically just flowers that have like a lip or a landing pad for pollinators. So your violets, your orchids, uh, mm-hmm. your mint family plants. And oh my gosh, I love flowers. I'm just, I'm just <laughs> okay. <laughs> there's a family of plants called the Asteraceae family. So it's the Aster family. Right. And so perfect example of an Asteraceae family plant is a sunflower. And oh, yeah, yeah. the characteristic of the Asteraceae family is that it has different types of flowers on it. So if you look at a sunflower, the middle, the center, every single thing that grows a sunflower seed 
is a flower. And this is what the characteristic of the Asteraceae family is, is that each individual petal is a fucking individual flower. So there's just like botany joke that goes around is where it's like um, a guy hands a bouquet of flowers to a girl and then (laughs) says, here, I got you flowers. And then it's like how a botanist does it, hands a single sunflower to a woman. Here, I got you flowers because they're... They're just like a bunch of flowers. That is such a meta nerdy joke. Uh, It's so nerdy. (laughs) Um, So if you look individually at those like petals, the ones in the middle are called the disc flowers and the ones on the outside of the ray flowers. If you look at the ray flowers, you see an individual stamen and pistil on each of them. Mm -hmm. But nobody knows this because nobody's looking that closely ever. Pick one dandelion petal. It's got a stamen and pistol. Dandelions are also in the aster family. Mm. Uh, chicories, uh, burdock. There's so many plants in that family that have individual flowers like that. So mm. cool. And then it's really cool. Once you start learning more about botany, you'll start to realize, okay, mustard family plants. All of those flowers have four petals. And there's not really, in our area at least, there's not really any other plants that will have four petals that isn't in the mustard family and then all mustard family plants are edible not to say you should go like out and and just eat four petaled plants uh please do right. more research right. <laughs> because sometimes petals fall off yeah oh this petal fell off of a baneberry <laughs> there's a, another great example like if you find if you can identify violets and you know the, the viola family and you know that species and you know that genus and you can identify violets in north america they're all edible yeah yeah exactly but you have to know how to identify them perfectly. exactly <laughs> you got to know them first yeah you got to yeah, know what they're not <laughs> yeah and it, that that comes into like with botany i often call like i grew up with grandmothers i'm sure many of us have not all of us sadly but some of us did and I grew up with grandmothers who watched The Young and the Restless and The Days of Our Lives and all those uh, soap operas, I believe is what they're for, uh, formally called. And in the, fo- uh, in the soap operas, you often have the good twin and the bad twin. It's the same actor or actress. And they've just been written, their character's been written off and killed and they got to bring them back somehow. So they bring in an evil twin. These evil twins, I often are what I mm-hmm. call the lookalikes that you see in the wild. So a great example of that is cattail and blue flag and mm-hmm. wike or sweet flag. Sweet flag can look very similar to blue flag at the right time of year, or really the wrong time of year. And the blue flag, which is full of iridine or irritant toxin, is the evil twin of the soap opera of nature. Same thing with like really wild carrot. Yeah, wild carrot hemlock. With, with hemlock. Another one that I've learned in the last couple of years is ginseng and baneberry. Mm-hmm. they can look a lot alike if you don't know what you're looking at one of the first ginsengs i ever came across in my life i was like oh look at this baneberry wait yeah what are you you're not a baneberry it took me like three looks to realize i'm looking at a ginseng plant holy shit i'm looking at a ginseng plant <laughs> and i was so stunned by that because i got it at the right time but it just looked so much like a baneberry that i was used to seeing Bunchberry and Jack in the Pulpit. Once yeah. it goes to seed, yeah, you can either have a great time or burn your face off. So, 
very true very true <laughs> that evil twin always think about the evil twin think of nature as a soap opera yeah you and don't touch the parsley family until you've gotten really to be an expert really we, uh, don't and that's that like a, as a, an analogy or a story with that was we have one spot in all of the region i live in that has water hemlock deadly poison water hemlock and it grows in a field at the highest peak of Hiawatha First Nation surrounded by wild carrot. Mm. And the only reason I noticed that that one was a water hemlock was it was three inches taller than all the uh, wild carrots. And I was like, that looks a little different. I walked over, I'm like, that's a water hemlock on dry ground on the top of a hill surrounded by yeah. wild carrots. So people will often be like, water hemlock grows in water. This is a field, I'm safe. No, you're no. not. Always no. follow bot botanical. When you up. make assumptions, you make an ass, ass. <laughs> and me you know what even me i feel like i'm really good at identifying plants i've been working with plants for like 10 years sometimes i get confused between a wild carrot and a poison hemlock yep they can look a lot alike. you know like the, the, i, think I the, don't harvest wild carrot <laughs> i think the funniest one that i ever had was actually in presence of nikki when i was the teacher and we were walking along like, yep, that's soap war. She goes, that was not soap war. What are you talking about? <laughs> I was like, well, what is it then? And what was it, Nikki? Dame's Rocket. Dame's Rocket. But I was yeah. so used to seeing soap water flocks yeah. bouncing bets, according to uh, different people, that I just assumed that that looked like it. That must be it. She's like, look at the petals. Like, you can There's tell. There's four petals. <laughs> I'm like, not five. <laughs> and I'm just sitting there going like, I'm as smart as I thought I was, but not as smart <laughs> as I am. And I'm like in front of like these 12 students and I'm like, thank you for making sure that I look like a dumbass, but in the right context, it was important to know. Yeah, totally. Difference. Totally. Like if I told those people that I was soap war and they went and started ripping it up and using it as soap war, it wouldn't poison them, but it yeah. sure wouldn't do what they expected. And I would look like a bigger idiot later. Exactly. It's like the time I taught an entire class of children that these squirrel tracks were rabbit tracks because they were running from tree to tree. And I got it in my head because we had played a game called Run Rabbits Run where you're rabbits and you run from tree to tree. So I got like my brain all mixed up. And then now I still think about it to this day. I'm like, I taught that entire class that yep. squirrel tracks are rabbit tracks. I think the horror story of, of horror stories in, in bad botany from teachers is Ethan, our good friend, Ethan Huner, who was told by somebody, yeah, that's a wild carrot. And so he just went by their like assessment and started like munching on it. And it turned out it was water hemlock, which is oh my God. arguably, and he's had two poisonings like that in his life. One was people told him it was sweet flag root and it was actually blue right. flag iris. But the first one was water hemlock. And it turned, so for those of you that are kind of curious, like water hemlock is arguably the North America's most toxic plant. Yeah, it is. If you ingest the toxins, which is toxin, it lowers your heart rate to the point that you start having seizures and then you die. Your respiratory system shuts down. Your nervous system is the last thing to go, which means you're conscious the whole way through and then you die. And that's terrifying. I would rather have a neurotoxin than this stuff myself because mm -hmm. I'd rather just be shut off and die. I would rather get bitten by a Mojave Rattler by any day <laughs> than ingest toxin. What about stung by one of those trees that we were talking about on the oh the gimpy gimpy yeah no yeah. <laughs> no that is i never want to deal with gimpy gimpy that is the suicide tree yeah that is so terrifying because it can last uh, years of pain yeah if you survive it horrible horrible um, 
so Ethan was told this is a wild carrot, so he ingested it, and it turns out when he caught when he realized that it was not it, because like this doesn't taste like carrot, this doesn't do this, this doesn't do that. Looked at the economic scale, is like, oh, this can either be spotted water hemlock or water hemlock, and we don't have spotted water hemlock here. Oh shit, I've ingested water hemlock. He contacted poison control, and they're like, when did you eat it? He's like 15, 20 minutes ago. They're like, and you have no symptoms. He's like, no, they will go to a hospital anyways, but you're you're immune. Yeah. And it turned out that he was one of 3% of the human population that is immune to sicu toxins, mildly, mildly immune, which means he could still have symptoms. He could still get sick, but he probably wouldn't die. And like one of the only things they can do for you if you ingest sicu toxin, which is again, water hemlock poison. If you ingest that, one of the only things they can do is basically give you epinephrine and caffeine and keep your heart rate as high as they can while your body works through the toxin and gets it out of its system. It's just terrifying shit it is terrifying and it's it's dead it's deadly like a small leaf could kill you yes there's don't fucking eat it (laughs) so i think the 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 analogy of the breakdown that i heard when i was in high school and i first started learning it was if a cow steps on the rhizomal portion of the plant which is the underground or underwater portion of the stem steps on that and expresses the juice of the cicutoxin into the water that this 1500 pound cow drinks the water that has diluted cicutoxin in it, they will fall in convulsions within five minutes and be stone cold dead within 15. Yep. Just to clarify, neither me, Nikki, or any listener I know here is the size of a fucking cow. Yep. And that was diluted. So do not play with these things. Do not no. mess with these things. Learn. Your Don't get overconfident. Ever. This is Nate, like botany and foraging is where Dunning-Kruger will punish you. Yeah, Dunning-Kruger yep. effect will punish you. So learn your plants, identify them properly and build those relationships so you know them. I have a relationship with water hemlock now because I see it all the time on my travel in the bush where it grows. And I've learned to understand that plant and learn to work around that plant. And there mm-hmm. are some people that even argue that there's medicinal aspects of cicutoxin. I'm not going to get into that oh, on yeah. a podcast. Yeah. I'm not going to dive into that on a podcast. No, 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 no. Any more than I would tell people to try, try out Digitalis for their heart. I'm not going to do that. Because or Belladonna. Or Belladonna <laughs> or any of those things. Yes, toxins can be used as medicines in small amounts, but that's getting into some homeopathy kind of crap that I do yeah. not want to play with. Nope. <laughs> um, okay, I'm going to jump back into these botany things. Yep. Uh so I talked about mustard family, the lily mm-hmm. family, the rose family. There's so many amazing yummy plants in the rose family. Mm-hmm. That's five petals and apples, raspberries, blackberries, hawthorns, hawthorns, um, the cherries, the list goes on. Yep. It's get to know that family because it's a delicious family. <laughs> of delicious, <laughs> delicious fruits. Of delicious, delicious fruits. Exactly. Um, and I think that's all I want to say about flowers. Mm. And then I'll just quickly introduce like the idea of leaf shapes for a second. Sure, sure. Um, so then you've got to look at the leaves when you're identifying plants. Mm. Oh, wait, I wanted to say the mint family. Square stem, <laughs> opposite leaves, and flowers that are look like dragons, snapdragons. So irregular oh, flowers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I can see that. So anything with a square stem, mint family with opposite um, leaves. Mm -hmm. And then the leaves can be entire, which basically means that you've got a leaf that has 
no rough edges, no teeth on the edges. It's a leaf a kid would draw. It's like an oval. It's smooth. It's simple. It's a simple sure. leaf. And then you've got tooth leaves, which teeth can be sharp or they can be uh, rounded. Yeah. Yeah. And then you've got lobes. Uh, think of it this way. A lobe is just a bigger tooth. So yeah. a maple tree or maple leaf has five lobes. Oak. And then those lobes have teeth. <laughs> yeah. And oak has lobes. Yep, and they're pointy or yeah. not, depending on what kind of, uh, which variety. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And then you have, and, for what would be those simple leaves, those round oval leaves? What would be a good example of that? Uh, plantain. That's a great one. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. And a good example of a tooth leaf, a dandelion. Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. Dandelion. And lobed, we already said, oaks, maples, um, also like uh, a violet leaf a heart, any heart-shaped leaf is mm -hmm. lobed because yep. it's got those two it looks like a bum those are two lobes so a basswood a basswood yeah exactly or burdock wow i'm learning a lot now thinking well not <laughs> learning but putting everything together and figuring it yeah, out yeah yeah does <laughs> botany does that botany does mm -hmm. that to you <laughs> what do you and so, so what what other kind of leaves do we have uh divided that's a confusing one okay it's a dividing one. Okay. It is a dividing, it is a divisive leaf. So basically a divided leaf or compound leaf. You could ah, also say compound. Yeah, yeah. Anything that comes off of a central stem is considered a leaf. And it might have smaller leaflets. So if you think of like the leaf of a black walnut. Sumac, ash. Sumac, yeah. Hickory. So, that horse entire chestnuts. horse chestnut exactly yeah 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 composite leaves um and those are considered one leaf with leaflets mm -hmm. so therefore it is a divided leaf a carrot wild carrot is considered divided ah uh, yeah 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 just like a, a yarrow yarrow yeah exactly yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, so that one took me a long time to understand when I first learned all this stuff. So just, just Google divided leaves <laughs> or and then you leaves. can have like a plant presentation. So the leaves can come out of the base of the stem only. They can come out opposite each other directly. So coming out at the same apex, they can be mm -hmm. alternating down the stem. Mm -hmm. So coming out down the stem, like a, like a stairs staircase. Yeah. Or, and then yeah, they yeah. can have no leaves like a colt's foot because the flowers come out and then the flowers die and then the leaves come out. Oh yeah, that does make sense. I was going to say, wait, Colts would have leaves. And then, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> That's where they get the nickname son before the father because the flower comes up before the leaf. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. You're right. I completely forgot about that first. Like, <laughs> leaves you idiot. And I'm like, wait, no, they don't. <laughs> yeah. So you might be seeing plants with no leaves in a certain time of uh, its life cycle. Yeah. So these are just like things to help you. There's this great book called Newcomb's Wildflower Guide. Love it. And you basically go through this. Like, let's go through a dandelion right now. A dandelion, is it irregular or regular? It is regular because it's radially symmetrical. Mm -hmm. And then is it entire tooth lobed or divided? It is toothed. Mm -hmm. And then is it leaves at the base, opposite, alternate, or no leaves? Leaves at the base because the dandelion stem is bare. So now you've got three pieces to, to look up in the newcomes. So then it gives you group numbers. And then you would look at, it would give you like three numbers, like three, two, five. Then you look up three, two, five, and then it would divide it more. It'd be like yellow flowers. And then you'd be like, okay, cool. Yellow flowers go to page 600. And then you'd find dandelion. 
or you'd find a couple of them that are very similar to dandelion and then it's up to you to read the descriptions and be like okay this one sounds more like it because mm -hmm. the flower size is better and that's called a dichotomic index scale yeah exactly yeah, yeah. a dichotomous key so it's newcombs is a great one to get do not use wild edible plants guides as identification guides those are supplementary guides you identify the plant first using a newcombs or a similar book um, such as the roms wildflower guide royal ontario museum's wildflower guide as an, a good a good analogy to help people who are just getting into this if you work in like car if you work on cars a lot you're going to have a mechanics guide to cars and then you're going to have a ford manual for that vehicle get the manual for learning about mechanics of the vehicles in general. And then you have the one for the car you're going to be fixing. That's such a good analogy. I figured that out because my buddy, Matt, he's, he's a mechanic, third generation mechanic. And I was like, okay, I got this man. He goes, you don't even know how to fucking look at an engine. Why are you even looking at that book? And I was like, right. I feel dumb right now. You're right. And then I kind of <laughs> connected the dots with, uh, with field guides and wild edible guides and like manuals for actual identification. I love it's, that. It's important to know. Same thing it like if you're really getting into if you're getting into plumbing, you have to know how to do plumbing before you can fix your water uh, heater. Like you need to have to know those things right. before you get to it. Yeah. Yeah, so Newcombs is a great one. And all the stuff that I've talked about too can be found in Botany in a Day by, yeah. um, what's his name? Thomas J. Elpel. Thomas J. Elpel. E-L-P-E-L. Big e fangirl. He's a cool guy. Uh, he's a yeah. nice guy. He's very into citizen science, which I love. Totally, totally. And as far as other guides go that I love, I love the Lone Pine books that focus specific, like wild berries. They have a specific one of wild berries to Canada. They have like very specific other mm -hmm. ones too. And they got good imagery of them too. It's not just like yeah. a, a kind of photo. That, there's my favorite thing, my favorite website series is Walter Muma's websites. Ontario wildflowers, Ontario grasses, Ontario trees. Mm -hmm. I love those websites. The only complaint I've ever had about his website, and it's not even his fault, it's the donations of photographs that he has, because some of them are very uh, not detailed botanically to be able to see what I'm actually looking at. So it's a great website, a lot of information on those websites. But, and, he's, and the descriptions are phenomenal for identifying, identifying through the descriptions, but the mm -hmm. images are nowhere close to as good as like the ones you see in Lone Pine. Right. Yeah. And as far as like, guides that or books that have to do with just like learning about plants for the love of plants totally. <laughs> like uh braiding sweetgrass by robin wall Kimmerer. beautiful yeah. book that like blends science indigenous knowledge and like beautiful poetry together about plants um there's also we're canceling stephen buner now so we're not gonna <laughs> oh okay yep cancel done Stephen has gone never exactly. seen his name <laughs> there's also like uh i have this book called wildflower folklore i cannot remember for the life of me who wrote it sorry everybody uh, but it's canceled. only book called they're not canceled i don't think <laughs> uh which just goes through amazing wildflower folklore there's like a, a book called plant lore mm -hmm. and it's like by webster's i think like the dictionary people really and it's just like plants organized like they're in a dictionary and then you can cool. look up the folklore Oh, about that's them. so cool. It's so cool. Michael yeah. Pollan has some great books about botany. Um, botany of Desire is a really cool book. 
trying to and the hidden it. life of trees i was gonna say hidden life of trees there's another book i'm trying to i'm just gonna google it real quick you just keep talking with the ones you know while i'm looking it up ah there got it never mind by drew monkman's books nature's year in the kawartha is a guide to the unfolding seasons it's a phenomenal book that uh is talking about plants and their seasons but also animals and their seasons and those of you that of course are checking out learning nature's language with chris gilmore this mm-hmm. book is kind of in that line along those concepts like you look at the book and it's going to tell you like during between this week and this week these plants are emerging these plants are already flowering these animals are doing this this is happening here i kind of disagree with drew on some of them uh mm-hmm. in the book he says the the only animal that has antlers in, in the court is, is the deer we have moose yeah so that's incorrect there's a couple others like he was talking about ling or uh uh, burbot and they are uh, on rice lake and they are doing this during their breeding cycle in february where the females put out their uh, their pheromones and all the males come in and make an orgy ball underneath the ice and they're rolling that does not happen on rice lake we do not have uh, burbot on rice lake they are in the deeper waters of the kawarthas not in rice lake because the deepest we have is just not deep enough to keep them thriving we do not have burbot on rice lake that i have ever been able to find any information on so there mm-hmm. are some misinformation in the book, but the book in total is phenomenal on the plant lore. It's really, really good on like understanding the seasonal shifts of those plants. Stalking the wild asparagus. Ool Gibbons or Yule yeah. Gibbons. Yeah. Love uh, Tom Brown's Field Guide to Wild Edible Medicinal Plants. Great stories in there. Yep. Yep. That's where I heard him talk about cattail as a, uh, anest- a topical anesthetic for like root canal mm-hmm. surgeries and stuff. I got frozen for a second. There was the last thing you heard me say. <laughs> Tom Brown's field guide to wild plants and medicinals. Okay. And then I said, Laura C. Martin, who wrote Wildflower Folklore. Yes. That's a good book. Yeah. Um, there's also uh, The Boreal Herbal by Susan oh, yeah. Gray. Uh, it's got a lot of good knowledge on plants. I have frequently argued. Beverly most- Gray. <laughs> Beverly Gray, not Susan Gray. Who am I thinking? Susan- you were thinking, thinking Susan, Susan Weed. Weed. Oh, yeah. I'm getting tired. Not enough caffeine. <laughs> um sorry beverly uh yeah the boreal herbal i kind of have my own complaints about that book mainly because i was expecting it to focus predominantly on just boreal plants uh but then she brings in like colts uh, not colts but sorry uh dandelion and a few other Yarrow. cosmopolitan plants yeah. that are everywhere so i was kind of like bummed that that could have been like something else that could have been in that chapter but that's just me it's still a really good book it's still mm-hmm, a really mm-hmm. good book on a lot of other aspects i'm just I'm very particular. Like if you're going to call it boreal, I wanted to see boreal specific and endemic plants. I didn't want yeah. to see cosmopolitan plants in there. I and guess I like it's, it's not me. glossy enough. It's not glossy enough. Cause like who, who's going to read about fucking crowberry, you know, who has crowberry just growing around? I'll read I know crowberry. I want to read about crowberry, but like, it's not, it, it's yeah. That's why it's to cosmopolitan. Yeah. It's a book about like plants like you literally can't find anywhere except for the Boreal. Like, and there's those books. I got one. Oh, I forget it right now. It's uh, an Aboriginal uses of plants in the Pacific, in the uh, Central Northwest, I think is what it's called. I got to look it up. It's upstairs. I might throw that into our Patreon uh, to let them see. I might make a book list for our patrons on Patreon. Yeah. Of everything we've been mentioning here for tonight, tomorrow's podcast. But that book is amazing because it's all about the actual life ways of indigenous mm. people and their interactions with these They're like whole chapters on Labrador tea, like huge amounts amazing. of information. Uh, my buddy Keith got it for me last year as a gift. And I 
love it. I just can't remember the name of the book or the author right now. So I'll be adding that to our Patreon. We're gonna be doing a little article, patrons only ask, uh, access. And uh, we'll be throwing that on the list as well. There's also one book I've recently fallen madly in love with. It's Plants Have So Much to Give Us, All We Have to Do is Ask by Mary Sissip Genius. I've heard of that book, but I haven't read it. Yeah, it's um, it, it does very much have to do with like the Anishinaabe teachings of plants. Mm-hmm. And there's lots of stories in there. Like that's where I got the plantain story about the spider bite that like nearly killed somebody, but then yeah, yeah. saved their life with plantain. And there's also uh, some great YouTube channels and blogs out there on plants. I don't like to promote plant ID apps because I've seen them go really awry really quickly with the wrong ID because they're like, oh, it's this. Nope, that was not it. And now you're going to get sick. And it also takes away the relationship building piece. Exactly. It's trying to fast track stuff that you just can't fast track. Yeah. But there's some great websites or blogs and there's some great channels on youtube and my i think the one that nikki and i are both thinking about when i say youtube channels <laughs> is crime pays botany doesn't this guy is an anarcho like <laughs> very chaotic neutral kind of dude that i just love so much because he's got that thick traditional chicago accent and he just cusses up a storm but he will introduce you to plants at the scientific name and break down exactly why they are important to that ecology and he'll walk you like his videos can sometimes be an hour long of him just on a skateboard or wandering through a wasteland area of like Detroit right. or something. <laughs> and he's showing you all these beautiful plants that he knows intensely and intimately. It's and so also, funny. He's so funny because he's got he's this amazing. thick accent and he'll just be like, like shouting off like scientific names of plants. He'll be like, this is Sclupios over here. Uh, <laughs> I love him. Uh, we got some sort of fucking variety of belladonna here. Yeah. <laughs> it's Caleb and I got got just matching shirts. Yes, because we love this guy. We support his channel. So we bought his, uh, <laughs> Nikki bought his shirts for us. Plant milk weeder get fucked. <laughs> I love the name. I'm wearing it as soon as I get it from you. That's the shirt I'm wearing as often as I can. <laughs> I have to send it still. <laughs> it's okay. I'm still trying to send you the, I got to still send you the tinctures and stuff from the, uh, from the uh, Japanese knotweed. Right, right. It's absolutely amazing, these things about. And then there was the person who joined us on our live chat that you love so much, their blog that I just got to come across. Oh, yeah. Pull up your plants. Pull up your plants. It's an amazing blog. I got to see like two, three articles on there this past week. Oh, you checked it out. They messaged me right after. Like, I, I, their their message was really heartfelt and really kind. And I was like, this is cool. I just responded. I was like, I'm already on your blog before you even messaged me. Yeah. Holy crap. I'm in love with your work. This is amazing. They spoke very highly of you, by the way. Oh, really? That's yes, so nice. They like Kevin, your work. Kevin they Healy, like your... I think that's his Kevin name. Kevin Healy, that's the name. Yeah. He's he's a wonderful, wonderful person. It was really cool to meet them on the on the chat. Yeah. So there's a lot of great resources out there that we're talking about. We're going to be throwing all this list together tonight that I'll be putting up on our Patreon on Sunday when this episode drops. So if you're one of our patrons, you can actually go and find links to mm-hmm. all of these books, all these websites, all these articles that we're talking about, kind of our own glossary to the to the podcast will be there on the on the Patreon. And again, if you want to get uh, get some of that stuff, you can get it for just a dollar a month. Just jump on there for a dollar a month or more. You can donate more and uh, subscribe for more and get more stuff. I see your dollar and I raise you 50. $50. $50, <laughs> you get to talk to me. 
in person or I'm sorry, not in person, but online privately. It's what we're going to call it only ferns. <laughs> okay. But you got to sign up for Patreon by Wednesday so that you can come to our zoom party. Yes. If you want to jump in on the zoom party, I think we're pretty much at the end of this show. So we might as well promote some stuff. We are going to be doing our anniversary party on zoom for patrons. If you want to join, you go to Patreon, subscribe to our Patreon. It's a dollar a month at the minimum. You can put more in if you want, uh, and you're going to get a lot more content that we give a lot more kickbacks. So we've been kind of lacking on the kickbacks because we've been trying to organize the kickbacks because people actually have to communicate with me when I say, hey, you get to talk to me for an hour a month on your own. Here's the times available. Let me know. And they haven't gotten back to me. So please, if you're a Patreon and you're paying Mm -hmm. that much, this is your warning. I'm trying to give you more of me or Nikki or any, uh, any of our supporters of Dragonfly Nation that want to jump in on there and do live sessions with you, do it. Get a hold of us. But anyways, one year anniversary party is happening this coming Wednesday. Uh, today is the 10th. That means it'll probably be the 14th. Yeah. The 14th. <laughs> Don't ask me to do math. I'm trying to do math in my head right now. I'm like four <laughs> days from now. Yeah. The 14th. Uh, this episode is dropping on the 11th on the Sunday. So three days after you hear this episode, you have three days notice to get onto our Patreon and become a supporter for just a dollar a month minimum. And you can jump into the podcast party with us. And we may even record that podcast party as a little kickback on Patreon for everybody to watch later as well. And maybe uh, the people in the top tiers of the Patreon, they can request uh, for us to do something. Yeah, yeah. Or they can like, we can have them join us on the call and I, like unmute them and have them talk with us and stuff on the podcast show. No, I meant for the party. Maybe they oh, can I know that like, too. They can do that Caleb, too. Caleb, you can you have to recreate the entire movie Grease in 20 seconds. <laughs> Basically a lot of, I can do that right now. There's a lot of sexual harassment. There's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of like rape culture happening in there and cars. And a lot of like 50 year olds pretending to be teenagers. <laughs> yes. A lot of older people being younger. Yeah. And they say grease lightning a lot, even though to this day, I don't know what a grease lightning is. I think I have an idea. I don't want to know what it is. Yeah, I'm not going to tell you. But yeah, that's 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 the nutshell. You don't have to wait for the Patreon podcast special. Just that right there. That's grease in a nutshell. Uh, but yeah, we can do a lot of those. If you want requests, I can wear costumes and, and Nikki can wear a costume. We'll see if Ryan's I have available. a fairy costume. You have a fairy costume? I, I have- do. I have a I have my goat skull mask. That's about all I got right now. I'll dress Let's up. Let's do it. Me. It'll be like my birthday again. <laughs> yes, it will be. Yes, it will be. <laughs> so yeah, we have all those options available if you want to join in with those. And of course, there's a lot of other things that come up for Patreon, uh, for patrons on Patreon. You'll be able to get in with us for live sessions that are just for them. We're actually getting that scheduled to start at the end by the end of this month to actually have like a weekly call-in session for those of certain tiers. There's articles that are only available on Patreon that we put up at least once a week, if not uh, sometimes once a month, depending on how busy we are. But we try to go at least bi-weekly on those articles. Uh, And we also have like little bios on there for our guests. Like we have one that's up for John Gadozzi from uh, when we did The Mind of of a Trapper. We're getting one written up right now for Paul McCartney for last week. So you can get to know our guests a little bit better as well. And there's a lot of other content that comes out. And of course, you're supporting us being able to do live sessions. Like today, while we're recording, the reason I'm talking even faster right now is any minute now I got to sign off to go and start getting ready because we're doing a live session. We're doing live sessions again on Facebook, weekly live sessions. We're going to do twice a week. And I'm like, I can't keep up with that, but I can guarantee that I can do at least once a week. We're going to go live 
today uh, on the live session, we're going to be doing all the garden prep. So I'm going to be handling poop and pee and animal guts and all that kind of gross, nasty stuff. And people get to watch me deal with squishy, wet, gooey things while I'm getting the garden ready to grow all my beautiful plants for the summer. So with all that and everything else we've been doing, is there anything else we got to say before we sign off, Nikki? Anything else you want to cover? Uh, no, I'm just excited. Uh, tune in next week for us talking about more plants. Part two. Part two. Part two is <laughs> next weekend. So enjoy this episode, folks, and we will see you next week. I want to thank all of our patrons, people like Flint Chandler, people like Davis, people like Sarah, people like Renee, who are jumping in, throwing out some money our way to keep us keeping this going, feeding sushi so she doesn't try to kill me and eat me, <laughs> making sure that we have power at the house and electricity to be able to do all this internet so we can do these things, buying new equipment for the show. We have a really good microphone. We have really good insulation around it now, sound control. We have really good laptops and being able to keep everything up. Internet is the only thing that's spotty now. That's because we're in a rural area. Can't really do much for that because Google does not send Google Fiber this way. But all these things that we have to make the podcast sound better, feel better, look better for you folks is because of you. So thank you so much to all of you. And thank you for tuning in tonight with us on the Canadian Bushcraft Podcast. Thanks again to Nikki for being an awesome special guest host with me, talking about all these things that we nerd out together with. You are a badass in your little tiny closet where that's your sound studio. I appreciate everything you do to help us with this. Nikki is a badass. Thank you. I don't like, oh, like I, really? I don't like her knowing these things because then she uses it to her advantage against me. I don't like that. <laughs> exactly. But you were a badass and I adore you. And thank you for all your work you've done this week, getting ready for this as well. And of course the live session, and we might be doing more Instagram lives. I'm not sure yet. We're talking, we were talking about doing like after shows for the podcast every Sunday. We're not sure if we're going to be doing that on Instagram live, or we might just do that for Patreon. I'm not quite sure yet. Mm -hmm. We might just do it for Patreon and have zoom sessions for that, but uh, we'll see. We'll see what, where we go with it. Thank you, everybody. Take care of yourselves. We will see you again next week. <laughs>